The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. It's time to transform your life. Welcome to Direct Connect Empowerment with your host, Fee Mazanki. Our program will explore the concepts and ideas behind Direct Connect Coaching by introducing guests who are using or are aligned with this program and have used the ideas to transform their lives. It is our sincere hope that you can use this inspiration to do the same. Now, here is Fee Mazanki. Welcome, everyone. I'm Fee Mazanki, your host, and I'm excited to bring you today's show. But first, a quick boomerang story for those of you who have been listening and those of you who haven't. We are establishing the boomerang movement on the show, and it's the idea of what you throw out into the world is what you get back. And we are encouraging our listeners to consciously throw out acts of service, kindness, grace, and success. And this week, my son received a note from his college professor As part of their final exam, students were required to do an act of kindness and write a report on it. Now, most of the students in his class baked cookies for the class. I guess treats were kind of one of the things that they they did at class time every day. However, um, my son Jake ended up giving money to a homeless man in Chicago, and he wrote about that account and the impact that this man had on his life after seeing him on a daily basis. This is a man that he would pass every single day when going back and forth to class. And he wrote about that and wrote about how this man touched his life and how what it felt like for him to reach out to this homeless man. The professor in her note explained how valuable his account was and how caring and wise Jake was. And this is coming from a child, I have to say, Jake, who was very afraid of homeless people when he was Uh, really young. So I'm really proud of Jake, really proud of the fact that he extended, kind of moved through his fear and extended uh, out to a homeless man to really make a difference. So let's keep the boomerangs of kindness going and be sure to email me with your stories so that I can uh, put those accounts on the show. I'm really excited about our topic today and the title of our show is Producing show-stopping results, and I'm joined by my very special guest, Joe Thomas. Joe, welcome to the show today. Thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you very much, Fee. I've uh, I've enjoyed listening to the last couple episodes of yours, and uh, congratulations. Thanks so much. And let me give you an idea of uh, Joe's amazing gifts and talents. He has a career in the entertainment industry that spans nearly three decades. As a writer movie director, and movie producer. He has worked with talents such as, these should sound familiar, Elton John, Paul McCartney, The Beach Boys, Toby Keith, John Mayer, Bon Jovi, Fleetwood Mac, Kenny Chesney, and County Crows, and that's just to name a few. Additionally, in the 90s, Joe served as the president of Platinum Entertainment until the, public, uh, until the company went public. Then in 2001, Joe co-founded HD Ready, where he directed and produced over 100 episodes for the television show Soundstage. Joe has also directed and co-produced the feature film Kenny Chesney, Summer in 3D, And most recently, Joe orchestrated the 50th reunion tour of the Beach Boys, where my husband and I had a chance to go, and it was fantastic, Joe, where the original members of the famous band reunited for the first time since 1965, and Joe was very instrumental in putting all of that together. And currently, Joe is working with Brian Wilson from the Beach Boys, uh, from the Beach Boys on his new solo album for Capitol Records. So... That frames Joe's uh, story of success in, and Joe, you have really one of the most long-standing successful careers in the movie and music industries. 
tell us a little bit about how you got your start in the business. Well, um, you know, I think your boomerang theory comes to mind when uh, when I get to the story of how I started. I think, and if I could just interrupt the question for a second and add something, um, it was a wonderful story about your son, but um, I've been kind of following this boomerang theory and I'd like to add a little amendment to it a little. Um, you know, the boomerang theory also works, I think, with people individually. Um, what you throw out about yourself is what people react to and what they believe in you. So, you know, I think in my start, I, I grew up in Bellwood, Illinois, which is a very lower middle class um, area. It's just outside the city of Chicago, a very diverse um, uh, population. You know, I grew up in uh, in really modest means. My parents really weren't very, very um, wealthy at all. And we had the smallest uh, barn or garage on the block. So I think I use that as a early stepping stone because... We went into the city hall once, and I saw an aerial view, you know, those big aerial pictures of your town. And I pointed out our house, and I said, Dad, we have the smallest house in the block, and we have the smallest garage. And I think that underdog theory is kind of the thing that that kind of pushed me a little bit. I always was striving to, you know, get to the next step. So um, I think early on, though, with this uh, boomerang concept, I met so many people that would throw out bad things about themselves. I absolutely hate self-deprecating humor. You know, if I'm short, you know, I make short jokes. If I'm going bald, rather than shave my head and look like a, you know, really cool, you know, you know, tough guy like Vin Diesel, bald guy, I'm going to make bald jokes about myself. Or if, you know, I'm thin, I talk about how I'm not heavy enough. Or if I'm heavy, I, you know, I've met so many people like that in my life. And I think that the boomerang could work in the reverse. I mean, if you if you throw out to the world that you're this self-deprecating, downtrodden person about yourself, it's very, very difficult for people to follow if you want to be a leader. I mean, people want to uh, people want to be um, led by strong people, and I don't mean you know self-denial or anything like that. But I think avoiding the obvious, and I hear it so much. You know, if somebody has a a little bit of a weakness, the first thing that they do is they make that weakness known to everybody else. And, and and they lead with that. So I don't know if this fits in with your concept, but I'm calling it the reverse boomerang. I think it's a good thing to avoid. And, uh, you know, growing up with my past, I've always used my, you know, meager beginnings financially as a stepping stone to, you know, I, I think I could really do well without money. I never worried about it because I was happy when I was younger, and my parents were wonderful, and they raised me very well. But, you know, we didn't even realize that we didn't have money back then, and that's what's so funny. You know, looking back at it now, it's it seems, you know, ridiculous that, you know, my dad was a factory worker, and I remember his paycheck. He was getting like $15,000 a year and supporting me and my mom on that. And it's inconceivable now to think about that, but I was really happy back then. So I, I hope I didn't get off on the boomerang theory too much, but, uh, you know, that, that's what I thought when it came to mind and when you were mentioning it the last couple of days on the show. Well, it's certainly a great point, and, and it really is the whole concept of the boomerang, Joe, which you illustrated so beautifully, is what you throw out is what you get back. And I agree 100% with you when you throw out that self-deprecating concept about yourself, you're going to get that back. It's not going to help you to rise to the level of success like you've done in your life. And so, yes. And so the, the idea here is to to throw out boomerang about oneself as well of someone that is a a kind, open, generous, warm-hearted person rather than listening to someone or listening to the voice of the inner critic, which is what a lot of people that I see in my coaching practice will do is that they're really dialed in, so to speak, to that voice of the inner critic. So, Thank you for pointing that out, and that's a really, really great illustration of it, and one that I would imagine that you learned some way, you know, going, you know, just just growing up, that some way somehow you learned that, hey, that's not really productive in trying to get myself ahead and get on a road to success. 
Yeah, and you know, I think turning negatives into positives, you never really know where the positive comes from. You know, I grew up in a very, very ethnic area. I wasn't Italian, I wasn't Mexican, I wasn't black, I was half Native American, so I had no group that I could identify myself with. So I was kind of the outcast. You know, I had friends in all different, you know, nationalities and races, and, you know, you know, it was a very mixed community, and our basketball team was fun to play. So I learned a lot about different cultures, but I never really belonged to one. I mean, it, and it was kind of funny looking from the outside in. The fact that I didn't belong to any one specific group really helped me relate to all of the groups. So I was kind of like the outcast at first, but then I kind of turned it into uh, a relational thing. And, you know, my first partner in in the music business was uh, Terry Cummings. I don't know if uh, the listeners remember Terry, but he played for DePaul. He was a very, very great basketball star there, and he went on to play for the San Antonio Spurs. And uh, I remember... um, we started a gospel company together, and it never really occurred to me that I wasn't black and I was running a gospel company. It was, you know, I was so kind of, I don't know what the word is, maybe ubiquitous, or I didn't have any any really kind of identification of myself. And I remember Peter Cetera, the lead singer of Chicago, and I went to uh, my first award show, was the, the, um, the gospel award show, and we were in the auditorium theater, and there were 4,000 people, and there was myself, Peter, and everybody else um, was African-American. And we sat there, and we were like going, you know what? everybody's accepted us because we really don't feel like we don't belong here. I remember walking up, I got a small award that night and kind of made a joke about it. And, you know, with the name Joe Thomas, they had no idea, you know, that this six foot four inch, you know, Native American guy is going to walk out there. But I could imagine the look on everybody's face. I didn't fit any kind of character mold. And I think just the fact that I didn't have that you know, worry about not being accepted and kind of that colorblind uh, idea of myself, I think it really worked and helped me identify. And those relationships I made back in the gospel industry are people that I still hold dear to today, even though I don't, you know, do gospel music anymore. It was my start, and that's when we founded Platinum Entertainment. Um, Our primary first genre of music was gospel, and within three years we had the largest um, gospel recording company. We had made some acquisitions in in the country, and that niche market became our stepping stone to a major platinum entertainment, a public company, and and an entertainment uh, kind of uh, empire that we had at the time, which we were allowed us to go public in 1998 off of. So I think that that's a a really good thing to feature, turning negatives into positives. So at the time, not being part of any group really seemed like a negative to me, but I think I turned it later in life into a positive. I would certainly say that that, again, illustrates that point so beautifully and, and also indicates that you really weren't about separation because you didn't have an identity to fit into. It was like, hey, I'm accepting of all because you didn't have one specific group that you fit into. And I think that's, that's a real positive thing as well. Yeah, but at the time, you know, I always remember, I mean, you know, it, there was a point where being Native American became cool. I'll never forget the day that it happened. There was a book called Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, and I was in college, and that became the, the go-to book about the, the plight of the Native American and stuff. And all of a sudden, and then I think Daniel Day-Lewis came out with a movie back then where, you know, he was this hunky Native American guy. I forget the name of the movie. And all of a sudden, you know, girls really dug it. So I grew my hair really long. Long and I started walking around with like fringe stuff around it. All of a sudden, I'm like, oh, wait a minute. For all, all the first 15, 17 years of my life, I'm like thinking that this is a problem. And now all of a sudden, I'm like this de facto superstar because I look different. And, you know, that didn't last very long, Fee. But again, for, for a couple of years, there, I had a run there with it. And it was kind of funny. Well, sure. And you embrace that identity, definitely. Huh. That's a great story. Now, when you were you were growing up in Chicago, I know you were playing for wedding bands. Um, now you're a famous uh, music and movie producer. So what advice do you have, Joe, for our listeners who are musically gifted and want to share that talent with the world? Well, you, you have to have an end goal. And again, 
how you get there is nothing that I could teach. I mean, you know, every everybody that has their own path is going to be their own path. And I think that you can't read a book or a self-help book and say, this is how Arnold Palmer did it, or this is how Kenny Chesney did it, or this is how John Bon Jovi did it. I mean, I think it would be foolish for anybody to try to, to um, emulate my path or anybody else's path to getting to the level of whatever perceived success is. But I think what you can do is you can take elements. And when I listen to your show, you know, I listen to some things that certain people say, and I can take that and extract it and apply it to my own life. But everybody's story doesn't necessarily fit. And I'm sure my story, I couldn't imagine the circuitous route that I took to get to the music industry. I mean, my dream was to be um, an athlete. You know, I I played football, I played baseball, and um, I tore my quadricep my freshman year of uh, high school. I thought it was the end of the world. Then I separated my shoulder. I mean, it was just, you know, I remember being basically in the hospital for my whole high school um, alleged career. So I never thought that um, music was going to be my my passion. I played the accordion when I was very young, and uh, apparently my mom tells me I was quite good at it. But uh, it didn't really click to me till I was sitting there, you know, with a separated shoulder, and I, my girlfriend had a piano that I brought into my garage, and I was tinkling away on it. And I was probably a junior or senior in high school before it hit me that. You know, how dense I was. You're not going to make it as an athlete, as a professional athlete. So we need to have plan B here. And I think that that's another thing that I'd love to share with your listeners is that, you know, abandonment, and Donald Trump said this the best. And, and by the way, his, his philosophy is quite different from mine on a lot of things. But this is one thing that I extracted from um, something I've heard him say. You know, abandonment is an opportunity. You know, rather than woe is me and why can't I do this, you know, you could use it as a springboard very easily into something else. You just have to be focused. So, you know, all of a sudden I'm sitting there, what else can you do in the summer with one arm? You can't play ball anymore. I got a piano and I started banging away on the piano. And, you know, I, you, out of nowhere, all of a sudden I liked it. And, um, you know, it was a talent that kind of lay hidden there for a while. And all of a sudden, you know, thank you, God. But you know, I found out I was pretty decent at writing songs. And, all of a sudden that became my new passion. And, you know, I'd, I'd love to still have a career and say, look back and say, you know, I ended up playing pro football or pro baseball, but you know, it wasn't in the cards for me. So I think I really did a good job for myself of abandoning that dream with no looking back. I still play sports. I love to golf. You know, there, there's a, a part of my life that's still attached to sports, but I don't have any resentment over it, and it became a very, very good opportunity for me to, to get injured and turn that negative into a positive again. Sure. Definitely an idea of taking the obstacle and really utilizing that obstacle as your greatest opportunity, which or you've not done. Not even looking at it as an obstacle, looking at it as a gift, because, you know, when I look at it, I don't even think about it as an obstacle. It was a gift because, you know, what? Yeah, I wasn't all that good, so what could have possibly happened for me in sports anyway would be a brief career, and by looking at that gift, all of a sudden, I found something that I was inadvertently, and I had no idea really at the time, because um, nobody in high school knew me as a musician. I mean, the kids that I grew up with, when I met them, you know, subsequently you go to reunions and you see people in your life, and they're like, God, you know, you were not you were never even a musician. I didn't even know you hummed. And so it's quite shocking to everybody that, you know, this laid somewhere inside of me, and I re- really didn't think of myself as a musician at the time. And then all of a sudden, like you said, it's kind of funny story about the wedding band. You know, that was my springboard. My wedding band was where I learned how to arrange uh, we had a really kind of a screwy um, group. One kid played tuba, another guy played the trombone, and another guy played the trumpet. And then we had three singers. And so I had to arrange for this really ridiculous, you know, tuba, trombone, trumpet, and try to make the band sound hip. And, you know, Chicago never had a trumpet or blood, sweat, and tears uh, trumpet uh, trombone, tuba, can, you know, uh, kind of a lineup. So we had to really rearrange all of the stuff to make it sound good. And I think that was my springboard to becoming early on. Uh, my first gig that I got was as an arranger. I went out to Los Angeles and uh, got picked up by United Artists as an arranger and a uh, kind of a ghostwriter. Uh, so I would come in and help, um, help songs that they would have 
um, kind of get to the next level. And I was a completely behind-the-scenes guy for three years as a staff writer. And, uh, and, and kind of my wedding band career is what really, really helped me get to that, uh, that arranging point. What a great story. We've got to take a quick break. You're listening to Direct Connect Empowerment with Fee and my special guest, Joe Thomas. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Do you want to directly impact your business results, improve the quality of your life, learn to empower yourself, or move through roadblocks to create more success for yourself? If so, directly connect with Fee Mazanke at Direct Connect Coaching. Fee is an expert in the field of coaching with over 14 years of experience. Go to www.directconnectcoaching.com to learn more about Fee's empowering programs. Fee works with individuals and delivers keynote messages that are inspiring and uplifting. Experience what Fee has to offer at directconnectcoaching.com. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to Direct Connect Empowerment. To reach Fee Mazanke or her guest on the program today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Now back to Direct Connect Empowerment. We're back with my special guest, Joe Thomas. And Joe's talking about uh, producing show-stopping results in your life. And Joe, one of the things that I know now is that you're... Uh, being in the industry as long as you've had, I know that artists are calling you to work with you. Um, what did you do to build such a powerful reputation in the music industry? Well, I think in the music industry or any industry, um, relationships are the key. And I think it's a very, very uh, important point that gets lost on a lot of people. You know, y- you have relationships that i had started with back in the early 80s, who inadvertently or, you know, through, you, 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 could, you could sit there and go, that guy's going to be a superstar, but maybe three other people that you never thought would be um, rising to the next level did. And I think if you treat everybody the same and fairly, and they could respect you, even though they don't disagree, there's plenty of guys out there that, you know, um, I hope they don't start calling in today, but, you know, they don't get it. They they may not have had um, an experience with me where they've always agreed with me, but I think that, you know, they found me to be a straight shooter, and as long as your convictions are your convictions, they may not agree with you, but, you know, they respect you for what they are. And I think, you know, burning bridges is something I've really tried to avoid as much as possible. You know, it's uh, it's an early, easy habit to get into as soon as you get a little bit of success, um, you know, forgetting the people that got you there, as they always say. But in the, in the music industry or any industry that's kind of like a niche market like this, you know, those people usually end up getting in and the people that stay in, you're going to meet them and you're going to meet them five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years down the line. So I hope that the artists that I work with have taken away a positive experience with me. And I think part two of it is you can't be a complainer. I mean, my my goal, if it's a Kenny Chesney, we did a great movie. We had, um, oh my gosh, we had seven locations. It was a 27-truck tour for Kenny. He had a lot of stuff on his mind. His number one goal was to entertain his fans and me making a movie around that and going to these different NFL stadiums and filming him was a side project, and I had to respect the fact that his number one goal is to entertain the fans that night. So you get a lot of directors that are very, you know, maybe self-absorbed and obtrusive, and okay, here's this big camera right in front of, you know, section three, and you're you're getting, you know, half of his fans angry because the camera had to take a shot, and they maybe went to the Kenny Chesney show and didn't see him the way they wanted to. Or I could have annoyed him with a lot of details before the show, or the day that, you know, the jib broke right before we were supposed to use it, and we had to, you know, um, 
figure out a way to rig it up again with seven or eight different people. And, you know, oh, Kenny, my day was so impossible. You know, we had to do this. We had to do this. People don't want to hear that. You know, I think making people believe that your job has gone smoothly is the most important thing because really they've got a job to do also. So a lot of people that are out there that think that, you know, by telling the boss or telling your partner how hard you have to work is somehow going to be um, a positive, in my experience, my philosophy has been make it look as easy and effortless as possible so what then, whether it's Kenny or John Bon Jovi or any of these people that you've mentioned, when they get done with their day, they don't really want to hear how hard your day is, because you can imagine how hard and difficult, and I know this seems a little bit, uh, you know, kind of difficult to say, it's very difficult to be a superstar. I mean, it's a different kind of difficult. Yes, they have all the riches in the world, and people are throwing themselves at them, but, you know, your life is on the internet. Every move is is, um, public. You know, they chose that life. And I'm not saying that we should feel sorry for it, but you have to respect the fact that you can't imagine the things that they're going through, and they're completely different than the things that, you know, um, my mom and dad were going through when, you know, they had to make the next mortgage payment. But that doesn't mean that they're any less taxing or less diminishing. So I think the, the, the end all of the story is I think my goal has been to make my job look effortless, not be a complainer, get great results, with minimum obtrusiveness on, you know, on my client's career. Yeah, and and certainly making their ability to entertain your priority um, is 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 definitely your your hands doing that, um, and just kind of you know being in the background and not not being so. Um, so aggressive and in their face. I think that's, you know, that's probably why these artists continue to call you time and time again, because that reputation is, uh, is one that may be refreshing in the industry for sure. Well, you can't make their, your agenda can't be their agenda because then you're, you're dead man walking. You don't even know why they're not calling you back, but that's usually the reason, you know, nobody's going to sit there and say that as a, as a reason, but they'll just shy away and, you know, and, and the other thing too is you, you have to make sure that you give people their space. You know, these are wonderful acquaintances that I've made in my life, but there's a big difference between friends and acquaintances. You know, I think keeping an open relationship where somebody that I've worked with five, six years ago will call me six years later and we could pick up where we left off. I think that that's very settling to the, the people in my industry and probably in many industries. But if you're, again, a whiner or a complainer and, you, you know, you, the relationship has ended because your record is finished or your time together is finished, you know, you, you've got to know when things have ended. And if you want them to begin again, you can't be a burden. You know, you can't be calling every three days and trying to rekindle, hey, remember this, because people move on. And you have to be secure enough to know that, you know, this person has moved on to the next project, and if our paths cross again, you want to start exactly where you left off rather than trying to, you know, rekindle a relationship when there's really no, you know, there's, there's no symmetry there anymore. And it, it has nothing to do with French, but these people are busy, you know. Most people are busy. So it's time to know when, you know, when your, your business relationship has ended, keeping a fine distance on a personal relationship, not being too obtrusive, and then being available when, you know, the next opportunity comes up. Sounds great. Joe, I love that you've had your hands in so many varied projects over the years, uh, including the expansion of the Arcata Theater in downtown St. Charles, which is where I live. Um, What's your vision of bringing more acts into St. Charles? I think we've got a, in our little town here, like many towns around the country, um, there's a gem of a theater that was built, and again, I'm not exactly sure when, but probably in the 1920s or 30s. It's one of those old palaces that holds about a thousand people. You know, it was built in a way that you could never build this again, you know, in today's economy. And it sits right in the middle of a downtown district that is very pretty. It's picturesque, it's on a river. I've seen many towns like this around the country, and the ones that are really successful are the ones that have been able to bring an infrastructure to the downtown area. And I think 
you know, you have to have a beacon. And I think in our town, this little theater is the beacon. Um, you know, it, it's a it's a destination spot. You know, there are hotels, there are restaurants, there are very, very many businesses that could kind of um, uh, exist off of a, you know, a profitable and a very nice venture with this theater. So I think the key to any theaters, which people miss most of the time, is the infrastructure. It's not necessarily what this theater looks like uh, to the fan. Of course, it has to look nice and it has to be, you know, accommodating. And, it, you know, they, they spend a lot of money on these renovations, making the theater look like a palace. But really what brings artists back is the infrastructure. Do they have good dressing rooms? Do they have, you know, easy in and out for the crew? And I think these are the boring details that a lot of people miss. So I think, you know, I've been talking to the city um, just as a consultant, uh, non-paid, just as a, you know, a resident who cares and trying to convince the city that, you know, you need to look inside and you need to make it comfortable and the amenities need to be there for the artists. Because when you're an artist, you look at the back, how clean is the alley? How easy is it for me to get my bus there? And Chicago, Detroit, Minneapolis, Kansas City, they really all look the same because, you know, 90% of the artist's life is spent in the bowels of the theater and not standing before the audience. And it's a very, very arduous day. And if it's filled with a pretty downtown, which we have in my community, and also a pleasant experience, this is their home 300 days out of the year. Uh, funny Willie Nelson story, I was working with him years ago, and um, he was back at his ranch in Perdinalis in Texas. And we were supposed to do a, a commercial for Farm Aid. Everybody's looking for Willie. And he wasn't in his house. He's got probably, you know, a couple hundred acres there. He had five, six people out looking for him. And um, he's sleeping in his bus. And everybody's going, Willie, you've been on the road 300 days a year. Why are you sitting there on your bus sleeping and not in your own bed? And he goes, well, I got into my own bed, but there was no vibration, so I couldn't get to sleep. So I had to turn the bus on and go sleep on the bus because I was tense and nervous because I didn't feel the vibration of the bus wheels and the engine while I was trying to sleep that night. And it just shows you how their life, I mean, he lives on a bus. That was Willie Nelson's life. It doesn't matter how big his house is or anything. So I think that you have to, you have to take that into consideration when, you, when you're trying to get artists to come to your theater. And that's what I'm trying to convince the city, that you know, building a good infrastructure behind the theater is what they need to do. Well, I'm really looking forward to it because having a theater like that and being able to see acts there is just so energizing for me. So I'm very excited about you consulting with the city to uh, bring bring that infrastructure uh, into the Arcada. So I'm anxious to see, and I definitely have some great requests for acts to come in. <laughs> <laughs> I know you'll you'll get there, Joe. You'll get there, right? I'm open, yes. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, just real quick before our next break, I know uh, you grew up in Chicago and you, you chose to stay in the area. If you can just quickly tell us what prevented you from moving to L.A., New York, or Nashville, those areas where uh, things were pretty populated in the music industry, what made you stay here? Well, you know, I did move to L.A. for a little bit when I had my record company out there. I did not love it. I mean, I love the concept of LA, I love staying there. You know, it's a great place to vacation, but it's just a little too spread out and crowded for me. New York has never been, you know, anything, you know, Manhattan is so crowded and congested. I get very claustrophobic there. So these are all just personal things. You know, I like to know that where I live in the Midwest, you know, the next big town is Des Moines and it's 150 miles away. You know, I love driving through the cornfields at night and, you know, um, you know, my wife and I will just take little drives and, you know, through the, look at the cows and the corn and the wheat and all that. And that's kind of my escape. And the thing I like the most about the Midwest, especially the Chicago area, is while we're probably 60 miles west of the city, you know, it's an hour and a half away and you, you have a big city environment, but there's an escape route. And I think our escape route is the fact that, you know, the Great Plains, you know, exist west of where we live and, you know, there's really nothing out there. So I really think it's a great place to raise our kids. But, you know, I probably could have lived anywhere. I just uh, am familiar with it. I have a lot of long-term relationships here. 
and I've uh, I've chosen to settle here. But I had lived in Nashville for a little bit. I liked it there. I have lived in L.A. a little bit, and um, I liked it there at the time. But, uh, you know, I think there's a sensibility in the Midwest that we have that I'm comfortable with, and it kind of fits my lifestyle. I would agree, and uh, it definitely it definitely has served its purpose for you in in many many ways and you've been you've been able to uh create such a dynamic business and so many facets of that business while still still staying here at home you know well, it's I've it's home to you that if if i would were to be asked what do you think the most successful thing i've ever done in my life I think that the fact that I was able to keep a career and live where I want to live and do what I want to do and live where I want to live are my two biggest accomplishments. And um, so thank you. I, I think that that's, uh, that's something that I've always been proud of, that uh, you know, I didn't have to move somewhere else to stay in the business. Not a lot of us in the Midwest doing what I'm doing, and I'm really proud of that. Yeah, it's it's definitely served you well. We are going to take a quick break. You're listening to Direct Connect Empowerment with Fee. Thanks for listening. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Do you want to directly impact your business results, improve the quality of your life, learn to empower yourself, or move through roadblocks to create more success for yourself? If so, directly connect with Fee Mazanke at Direct Connect Coaching. Fee is an expert in the field of coaching with over 14 years of experience. Go to www.directconnectcoaching.com to learn more about Fee's empowering programs. Fee works with individuals and delivers keynote messages that are inspiring and uplifting. Experience what Fee has to offer at directconnectcoaching.com. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to Direct Connect Empowerment. To reach Fee Mazanke or her guest on the program today, please call 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Now back to Direct Connect Empowerment. Welcome back. And I'm joined by my special guest, Joe Thomas. And uh, Joe, I've seen your work in bringing a stage design to match the style of the artist that you're working with. I want to ask you about how you get inspired with these ideas because they really are unique and original ideas that certainly seem to match the artist's style and personality and, and the message that they are looking to convey. Well, thank you for noticing that. I think, you know, there's a little secret and a trick I think that you could apply to life and, and I've applied to life is, you know, first of all, I think you have to find people that have like interests you know, whether it's in life or whether it's in music or whether it's in stage design. I mean, my shows have had my personality and my tastes of artists. So it, it's kind of a maybe cheating a little bit, but, you know, I think I share sensibilities with the artists that I work with, you know, just like relationships. I mean, you know, you could have one person that looks at certain things and certain aspects of your life that they love and they endure, you know, they're endearing you to that. And then you have other people that don't like those aspects of your life. Well, you could try to fight it and you could try to make that person a believer, or you could just sit there and go, you know what, there's a very, very, I'm starting to race 50 yards behind. So before I get too deep into this relationship, I'm never going to change this person. So I better be, you know, aware of, you know, what this person's thoughts are and what their dreams are and what their goals are, because it's going to be twice as hard if I'm going to try to convince somebody, you know, to do something they don't want to do. And then I think part two of that is once you're in that camp and you found somebody, whether in life or whether in business, that you're comfortable with, I obviously think that the other important thing is to make sure that you don't impose too much of your will on anybody. It's got to be a give and take. You know, if you really want the stage to be yellow and the other person wants it to be blue, you could probably win the war and, you know, get your yellow idea in there. But, 
you know, there's going to be a resentment and there is going to be something that you really have to monitor. And if you're pushing too hard, you really need to know when to back off. And I think that applies to not only my business, but, you know, any business. And I've seen that so many times um, in the past. Um, when I had my company and we went public, I was known as the artist's kind of producer and I was a very artist-friendly um, person. And when we got into the public situation, it became a very monetary and a business-driven situation. Now, I think that what I've been successful at is is respecting the fact that the music industry has been a give-and-take of the business and money people and the creative people. I think too many people forget that, that there's a give-and-take. You know, um, artists become all altruistic and think, you know, they, in fact, for a while there, they used to call the record executives the suits, you know. Well, remember in the early 1900s, before there was a monetization of the music industry, you know, musicians that were, you know, jugglers, musicians, vaudeville actors, I mean, they were the dregs of the earth. You know, they were not respected. You know, there were no superstars and there were no Justin Bieber's or Miley Cyrus's or Kenny Chesney's or John Bon Jovi's or anything like that. They were just like folly. I mean, they were there for entertainment. People used to throw tomatoes at them. Once there was a monetization of the music industry, I believe maybe it started with Rudy Valley and Valentino and all these early actors, and people found out, wow, you know, there's some money to be made here. There was a partnership, and an unholy alliance, but the business people and the entertainment people got together to their mutual benefit. Artists became bigger and more well-known, and the um, money people got to make their money. So it became a business. And I think we have to remember that. There's no, here's the creative guys and here's the business guys. It's a team of two people working together. It's the same with athletics. There's owners and there's players. And both of them have to work together. And there has to be a great combination and a mutual respect of both sides for things to really work. And I think when people get their rough, their feathers ruffled about any kind of situations that are happening now or before, it's when people really don't believe that they've been respected for what they do. And when you lose that respect, I think that's when, you know, the success is diminished. Sure. And it requires so much uh, listening and um, and the personal touch. What I what I keep hearing you underneath it all is kind of like you you. It's the personal touch and remembering to treat to, to treat the artists and tr- to treat everyone in the industry with uh, kindness and respect. You know, and, and it even goes beyond kindness and respect. But you know, there's there's a, a homework that needs to be done where you really need to figure out. And again, this applies to relationships, life, business, anything. You know, not trying to make them feel like you're diminishing their want or their worth in any way. And that doesn't mean that these artists have a big ego. It's anybody in life. You know, if somebody is uncomfortable with it, I see so many times, we'll go back to the beginning about this self-deprecating, but it also goes the opposite way. You know, if you're in a relationship with somebody or you're in a situation with somebody business-wise and they have a fault and you've identified that fault, steer clear of it. Why would you want to exaggerate or why would you want to bring it up? You know, everybody isn't the tallest. So why would you want to shoot an artist that makes them look short? You know, maybe um, maybe there's an artist that feels a little bit, uh, you know, conscious about their weight. So, you know, if you've got the greatest camera shot in the world and everything has worked from a situation of the color is right and the, the, the snap on the lens worked perfectly and as a director you love the shot, but if the artist doesn't like it because they don't feel good, you really have to respect that because it's going to be something that they're going to be looking at for the next 30 years. And you don't have to put your butt on the line. It's their, you know, it's their butt that's going to be in front of people for the rest of their life. And you have to really realize that because you get to walk away. They have to live with this product. So you really, really have to be respectful and mindful of you know, what they're, the things that they like and what the things that they don't like are. Sounds great. Now, I know you finished up the 50th anniversary tour of the Beach Boys. Um, I want to ask you about how you managed to reunite the group to get together for this really remarkable tour. Well, I think I started with the idea. Uh, I've known the Beach Boys. Um, they were on my label back in the 90s. I produced a record with them 25 years ago, and I knew all of the members of the group. I hadn't spoken to many of them in 10 years. 
Um, but we did a good project back in the 90s, and once again, applying the principles I've just spoken about, you know, I didn't manage to make any serious enemies on either side. And when they all got back together, I had realized over the last 15 years, I had been talking to individually when they would come through town, each one of them. Um, I'm very close to Brian Wilson, as people probably know. Uh, we ended up moving out to, to the Midwest together in our hometown of St. Charles, and for, um, I believe, five years he lived here, and we did a couple records together. So I'm very close with Brian to this day, although he doesn't live in the Midwest anymore. And um, we just happened to say, look, it's the 50th anniversary. It's time. Uh, my partner, John Branca, business partner, um, and I and a guy named Tony Demetriotis, who's a major manager in the industry, uh, we came up with a plan. A Live Nation uh, was a big promoter. They offered us a national tour. And the guys did, I think, 75 shows together. And I was... Uh, very, very fortunate to be involved in writing some of the songs on their comeback record, and uh, it, it was a real pleasurable experience. It had a time and a place, it had a beginning and an end, and I have fond, uh, fond memories of the whole thing. And it was, I will say, from from a fan perspective, because I was at one of the shows here in Chicago, um, it was just fun to go back and just relive kind of the memories of the Beach Boys. And I think that's what music does for us. It really takes us away, allows us to escape from whatever daily life struggles we may be facing. And you just go to that place of where you're experiencing joy and fun and you just let it all go. And and I, you know, stood there, sang the songs, watched the really great videos that you put up on the screen there, and it was just quite fun to uh, experience from a fan perspective. Well, well, that's the fun of being in the music industry. Uh, you know, a song means something different to everybody. Everybody can remember, whether it's the Beach Boys or anybody, where they were when a certain song was played, and it has such a memorable attachment to our lives. So I think that, you know, it's very wonderful to look out in the audience from backstage. I, I did not play on the tour on this one, but... Um, uh, years ago, I, I did, but uh, this last tour, I was—I'm um, a little too old to get up on stage anymore. But looking from backstage and looking at the faces, the people singing all the words along, it was really something that was worth doing. And for that generation, and really more than just that generation, those memories really were important to come out. So it was very, very, very fun. Yeah, definitely. And speaking of fun, what would you say, Joe, is the most fun you've had in the, your longstanding career? I mean, what can you can you pinpoint in a time or an event or anything that was just really heartwarming and fun for you? My favorite favorite experience was um, when we were doing the Kenny Chesney movie. He he has a basketball court that he assembles before backstage. You know, we play these outdoor outdoor stadium. So there's a huge parking lot and he's got a little compound that they fence off where he has his bus and, and all that. And he bought this basketball court. It's the beautiful breakaway nets with the glass bass, you know, backboard and stuff like that. So being able to be the center on Kenny's basketball team with him being my point guard. And uh, we, we're all older now. So we, we have the net that comes down to nine and a half feet. So we brought the net down six inches. And I just remember a pass that Kenny um, threw up and I dunked it over his trainer um, before one of the shows. And it was my favorite memory of just a bunch of guys, the musicians, everybody's just, you know, a, a buddy, bunch of guys living a different dream. And here's a guy who's, you know, about to play in front of 80,000 people. And he's visualizing himself as, you know, Derek Rose, the point guard, you know, throwing a pass to, to me and I'm dunking it. And that was it. That, that, you could have ended it all right there. I would have been happy. Oh, that is so fun. That's, <laughs> that's an awesome story. Great, great. Um, I want to talk a little bit, Joe, about some of the struggles that you've had to overcome and what you learned from the struggles and kind of how you view those uh, those things that you've had to overcome in the industry um, over the years and, and what you can share as advice to our listeners. I think, you know, one thing that I would bring to mind is my life. I was adopted, and, um, you know, I've, I've met a lot of people that were adopted over my life that have different views on how to handle that. And, um, you know, I know 
what nationality I am. I know where I was born in Arizona. And, uh, you know, I've created a story of, you know, Catholic Charities got me to Chicago, and I was adopted by a great, great mom and dad who raised me. And But I've always had a, a little bit of a chip on my shoulder, and I think there's many different ways you could go with that. You know, you, you can go with the, woe is me, why did my parents not want me? You could try to sit there and figure out what what it was that led to the circumstance of your adoption. You could romanticize it and, you know, try to find your parents. Everybody has their own path, but I took I took it as, you know, I'll probably never know who my parents are, but I want to know that if they ever did meet me, whoever my adopt, you know, my biological parents are, that they would have been proud of me. And maybe sometimes it turned into a little chip where, you know, I wanted to say, well, you know, that was the worst mistake they ever made. And there were times in my life that I got into that vibe too, which wasn't really all that healthy. But I just really wanted to use that as an example for myself to, to say, look, if, you know, if you could start from these kind of beginnings and you could, you know, whether you call it self-made or whatever, because even self-made people, they have a lot of help along the way. So there's really nobody truly that's self-made. But you know, looking back at it and saying, if I could do the best with my life, that my parents would have been proud. I think that's how I kind of always motivated myself throughout my life and thought about it that way um, as kind of a motivating factor of something that really didn't start all that well but ended great. And I got a great set of adopted parents, and um, it really worked out well. My mom and dad treated me wonderfully, and I never really used it as a crutch. Although, you know, when you're growing up, people would all back then in the 60s and stuff like that, you know, it was like kind of embarrassing, and for a while there, I didn't want anybody to know it, you know. So you, you take those little kind of personal tragedies, and you try to build it into a positive experience, and I think that that's what I was able to do. So, Yeah, and what a wonderful perspective you've had. We are unfortunately uh, out of time, Joe. I really appreciate all of your uh, stories, your wealth of information and knowledge, and uh, the sharing that you've been able to do with our listeners today about your success, because I definitely know that it's something that our listeners can take and what you said earlier, apply some of these concepts that you're talking about to really launch their own success in whatever it is that they do. So thank you so much, Joe, for being such a great guest today. And I also want to say to, as I do and and wrap up with every show, thank you so much to our men and women of service. Thank you for the freedoms that you bring to all of us. We really do appreciate that. And uh, as a reminder to our listeners, the boomerang movement is, uh, is, is holding strong. And I want to uh, definitely make sure that you send in your stories or examples or even videos of those types of experiences so that I can share them with the audience and we can keep this, this boomerang movement of positive success Uh, positive energy, positive uh, methods of service. Keep that going strong. So thanks for listening and have a joyful week, everyone. Thank you again for joining us this week on Direct Connect Empowerment. Fima Zanke will be back with another guest next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We'll see you then. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.